Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast forwards his favorite foreign film. Powder donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the name and price tool from Progressive. Oh man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm gonna need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to Accelerate Your Business Growth with your host, Diane Helbig. Diane is a leading small business development and leadership coach, author, and speaker who is passionate about sharing valuable ideas, tips, and techniques with business professionals worldwide. Diane brings you the world's experts and gurus in all things business, whether it's sales, structure, social media, planning, or plateauing, guests bring their expertise and energy to each episode. When growing your business is your focus, Accelerate Your Business Growth is the show to listen to. Got a topic or guest suggestion? Let Diane know. The goal is to make sure you have the information you need to move your business forward. Thanks for joining us. Settle in and enjoy. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me. Today's podcast is sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is a leading provider of spoken audio entertainment and information. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Get a free book when you sign up for a 30-day free trial at audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth. Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast continues to enjoy inclusion on lists of the best podcasts to listen to for a small business, sales, leadership, you name it, uh, and we are really honored about that uh, and realize that it's because of the guests. These are folks who join me to have a conversation where they share their expertise with all of you so that you can take what you need and do better things in your business. Today is no different. My guest today is Brian Gill. Brian is a computer scientist, entrepreneur, and angel investor. As an expert in data recovery, He spent the last 15 years digging people out of data disasters and helping businesses recover from cyber and storage disasters. Brian has dedicated himself to educating small business owners, startups, and entrepreneurs about how to protect themselves and their clients from hackers and ransomware. Thanks so much for joining me today, Brian. Thank you so much for having me, Dan. should be fun. Yes, absolutely. And I want to start with ransomware because this is – just one of these fascinating things. And I, I, every, I feel like every time I'm in a meeting, someone is talking about someone they know who has been a victim of it. So will you explain to the listeners, like, what is a ransomware event and what's going on with these things? Yeah, sure. So people have been hacking computers since computers have been a thing. Um, you know, as a super young man, you know, when I was like nine years old, I wrote my first attempt at a virus. So, you know, this is something that has always been going on, right? And what's new is the direct monetization or the easy monetization of these hacks. 
Um, you know, it used to be maybe if you stole data from an organization, maybe I'll go shop it to a competitor. Um, and you can imagine how difficult that must be to try to get, you know, Pepsi to buy a bunch of sensitive data from Coke because nobody wants to go to jail and you're going to have to convince this other party to, to play ball. That's going to be really, really hard. Um, but now you don't need to even bother with all that. You can literally just grab an organization's key business data, lock it down with encryption, and then demand a ransom payment to then give you the decryption keys. So it's certainly not easy, but if you were to penetrate a business's network, and if you were to get kind of God mode access, and if you were to encrypt everything, because that technology is fairly new too, right? So there's a couple different things going on. And then the last kind of key to the kingdom is cryptocurrency, which is also, you know, pretty new. And yeah. now when you demand a ransom payment, it's not a briefcase full of cash, right? Um, nor is it really like a bank wire, which would give you a lot of yeah. ability to then try to track down, well, at least I know what account we sent the wire to, and then we can go have law enforcement, you know, go investigate that right. bank and that account or see where, okay, it, it went from here to here to here. And let's, let's as a, some sort of FBI person, let's do everything I need to do to try to track down who these folks are. You know, one of the byproducts of cryptocurrency is that it's, it's pretty darn anonymous. And so you kind of can use modern technology to kind of hack into a network, modern technology to encrypt that data and then modern technology to get paid anonymously. And it's kind of, you know, it's pretty much out of control. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Okay. I have so many questions. My, my first one or my next one, I guess I should say is I thought the deal with cryptocurrency was that in, in order for like someone to pay with cryptocurrency, the collective was involved in saying, yeah, that's a, a legitimate deal. Yep. You're correct okay, about so that. So how does that happen with, with this? So you're 100% correct. One of the whole points of blockchain is you have a collective. As a collective, we all sit there and look, can look at every single individual transaction. And we can all agree that, you know, that wallet over there moved two Bitcoins to that wallet over there. Right? Okay. Um, most of the actual popular forms of cryptocurrency, Bitcoin included, um, they decided very early in their design process that it was okay, 100% okay to have an anonymous wallet. And in fact, uh, it's been debated for many, many years, uh, like who is kind of the inventor of Bitcoin? Because somebody is sitting on billions of dollars worth of currency, you know, the founder of it. And people yeah. have debated and accused one person of being the founder and you know they claim that they're not and all this kind of thing so that anonymity was built in and not just i wouldn't say not just not not really for the benefit of the criminals or at least that wasn't part of the early design it was really more for maybe people in countries where their government is really oppressive and really wanting to make sure that you don't give money to any um you know religion or any charity or buy any products that the that the government deems you know socially irresponsible mm. um 
you know, uh, in, in this, in our country, we decided like maybe 10 years ago that poker, you know, is a, is a, is a bad thing. We shouldn't have online <laughs> poker. And there were millions of poker enthusiasts all over the U S that really enjoyed logging in the full tilt poker and, and yeah. they, they would just be, you know, logging money any way they could. And they had this event called, it was Black Monday or Black Friday, I don't know. And, you know, the government basically said, nope, it's, you know, it's not illegal to play online poker, but they made it really, really hard to, to put money in, and get money out of these platforms. So that's, that's kind of the, but to answer your question, that anonymity is just part of most of the popular platform. Yeah, it seems like that that's a, a bit of a problem. So uh, that, of course, criminals take advantage of. So what's it like negotiating with a cyber criminal in a ransomware situation? Surprisingly pleasant. Um, probably <laughs> the most, yeah, they're very professional. Um, you know, they're, they're certainly not prone to, you know, threats and, and they don't often double dip where, you know, one of the biggest fears is that when you push this cryptocurrency across to their wallets, it's gone and there's no recourse. That, that yeah. is one way transaction. And once you push go, there's no getting that money back or that, you know, crypto coin back. Yeah. Coin back. Right. So you're 100% wholly dependent on them then following through with what you just tried to purchase, which is a bunch of decryption keys. And you, you might think that they would be in great position to come back and demand another one, another big payment. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they have um, a couple things are going on. One, they have an online reputation. And if any particular criminal syndicate has a reputation for not having good customer support, for not providing the decryption keys and technical support if necessary, um, or if they have a reputation for double dipping, it's gonna make it that much harder for anybody else to trust them. And the flip side of that is if a particular, you know, brand of, of ransomware has a very, very stellar reputation as far as responsiveness and always 100% of the time coughing up the keys and coughing them up quickly, that is going to have the, that's going to lubricate the process of facilitating and people taking that risk. So they, they really are very responsible with their kind of brand management and they are, you know, I and a bunch of people on my staff who've done it even more than me, it is, I would say, nearly award-winning customer support. I mean, if you send them a, an email, you'll probably get a response within usually five to 10 minutes. All hours wow. of the night, all hours of the weekend. Um, they're usually pretty cordial, pretty well-written. Um, not, you know, the scary kind of human ransomers. Or, you know, the, it's not that type of experience yeah. at all. They're, they're actually pretty professional. That is crazy. It's weird, but it's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Okay. And and so one of the things that I've been hearing a lot lately is that small businesses are especially vulnerable because they don't like they think they're too small to be a target when in truth they're a great target. 
maybe because they have that belief system. But is is there is there a too small to be concerned about it or? Definitely not. not I mean, okay. even just people in their personal lives should be more concerned, right? Um, if you're an entrepreneur or a solopreneur or you're just getting your, your company off the ground or you've been in business for a year or two, you know, unfortunately, um, it's not that you're a specific target, but the ransomers are casting a very wide net. And if you are not doing about a dozen things well, you are, while they didn't specifically target you, you're going to get burned at some point. And um, so I don't think it's ever too early to start thinking about it and to start doing some kind of practical things from day one or, you know, in the first couple of years. And kind of, I would say the number one thing is just to educate yourself. You know, I know your podcast is about accelerating the business and the sales and the marketing and, and all the really fun stuff, right? It's fun growing your business. It's awesome when you see your business do 25% better revenue than the year before, right? It's, I look back 15 years ago when we started Gilware and, you know, those first moments are some of the happiest of my life where, hey, I can like afford to pay myself a salary. You know, that's, that's awesome, right? Like that's, yeah, yeah. no one can ever take that away from me that we built something that, you know, I got a paycheck from, you know, let alone a bigger paycheck than I could get anyplace else. But it's really, really neat stuff. And, um, but this is not necessarily about accelerating your growth, but more about making sure you don't have a massive deceleration, right? By, right. By a crazy disruption. Yeah. And the more fun you're having, probably the more you need to be worried about it. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly. That is exactly right. So let's talk about some of the things that small business owners can do to um, safeguard themselves. And and one of them that, that I don't even know if it works or not, so I would like you to talk about is managed service providers. Yeah. Do they help companies stay secure? And if so, how? And how does someone know that's actually happening, even though the MSP's telling them? Like, yeah. on that. Yeah, it's really, so, so every business, including my own, you know, once you hit, and we're a bunch of IT nerds, okay? And even when we hit like 10 or 12 employees, there was enough kind of day-to-day distraction with a lot of these different IT things like, oh, okay, somebody needs to buy a computer and somebody needs to put our software on it and somebody needs to create an email account and put antivirus software on it. And okay, where is this going to be hosted? Like even us as a technical company, it made sense over the years a couple times to hire an MSP versus the dramatic expense of trying to hire us uh, an IT person, right? Mm, yeah. To actually sit there all day. I mean, right. and that's a huge expense. And it, and hiring that first IT person is no picnic at all. What if they're no good? You know, what if they're sick for a month? You know, yeah. 
they're one, you have all your eggs in one human's basket and probably a CEO or founder that's never hired an IT person before and doesn't even have, isn't even equipped to know if they're any good at their job, right? Right. So it's yeah. really hard. So definitely 100%, if you're a business with, you know, five to 50 employees and you don't have an in-house IT and for somehow you've made it this far without hiring an MSP, your life is so much better when you do so. But um, the, I guess the first thing I would say, like, how do I know the managed service provider I have is any good? That's a very mm -hmm. different question. Um, real quick, they're not the cheapest one you talk to. Um, that's <laughs> a really good rule of thumb, right? Yeah. Um, they, they probably have more than five employees themselves. You know, not, nothing against the micro... Um, micro-sized MSPs or the one person, computer person that is servicing three or four small businesses. I love that person, but you have all of the same, like what if that person is sick for a couple of weeks problems as you would have with right. one internal employee. So I think a larger group of, you know, five to 10 at a minimum employees, and obviously hopefully 80% of them are technical. Um, that would be kind of a size that I would be looking for as far as a minimum. Um, now some like practical things, like one of the things that many of the quality MSPs are going to do is they're going to sit down with the business owner about once a year at the least. So they're going to have an annual meeting where they walk you through as a business owner, all of the stuff that they've got going on for you. And don't dodge that meeting as a business owner. Like you should make sure that you attend that meeting and pay attention. Um, one of the things that I would always kind of demand happens in that meeting is show me the paperwork and more specifically the audits of your backups. So everybody thinks they have backups until they don't, right? Um, okay. A backup needs to be current. Um, you wouldn't believe how many times we go to the backup and it's six months old or three months old. And it's because wow. some human had to do something to create it. And that human's been kind of lazy um, or that more specifically, it's not complete. So while 80% of our stuff was on this system, which gets backed up nightly or on demand or in real time, but none of our payroll, none of our accounting, all of that stuff was over there and was not part of that backup set. So, you know, what I always demand is that my MSP is not only configuring all of our machines on the network and servers and even our clouds, even our Salesforce or, or whatever you're using for a CRM, even those types of third party services should be backed up. And I wanna know when is the last time one of those IT people downloaded those backups and walked through a mock restore and verified that everything was good and everything was there and the, the data was from yesterday and it had my payroll, it had my accounting, it had my CRM, it had my emails, it had our architecture designs or whatever it is that, that your company does, right? And um, it's not very common. You know, I, I would say from just working with MSPs throughout the years, maybe 30% do that kind of thing. Um, so it, it certainly is something that I would be kind of demanding. Um, yeah. I, 
I also think that you need to have human readable, non-templated disaster recovery plans. So they should be able to tell you, hey, Diane, if, if, these, if this system ever goes down, it's going to take two hours to get it back up and running. And here are the steps that we follow. And we know that it's true because we just did it in a mockery store and it took two hours, right? Um, so again, it's, and, but what a lot of MSPs give you are these 300 page garbage yeah. disaster recovery templates that have nothing to do with your business. Right. And they right. I don't think I've ever heard of one doing a mock restore. That's so interesting. Yeah, and, and you don't want to be doing the real restore when you're done. Yeah. And you have clients right. calling you, Diane, why is X, Y, and Z down? How come I can't put in my order for your products? Or how come I can't yeah. access my portal? Um, and your organization has no idea. And what are, what's your message going to be? Well, uh, we had a crash and we're working on it. Yeah. Or is your message going to be, we had a crash and we're going to be up in... 47 minutes. Yeah. You know, I, I know which one I would prefer. And what you're going to find as a business owner is the cost of having a wonderful MSP doing the things right is maybe 20 or 30% higher cost than the MSP that's not doing those things. Um, but this is a pay now or kind of pain later situation. And, right. um, you know, they might have a, just a couple more things. They might have a, there's an acronym called CISSP, which is like an information security professional. They probably have one that works there. They're not like partnered with another firm. Like they have one person with that acronym that, that works there on a daily basis. They've probably reviewed your cyber insurance. So they know enough about this stuff yeah. to say, Diane, you know, do you have a specific cyber insurance policy in addition to your business insurance? They've probably looked at it for you and maybe had some comments. Um, on a month-to-month -month basis, they're assisting your organization with things like asset management, password management, patch management. Uh, maybe they've offered you some social engineering training. Um, you definitely are, when you log into your VPN from home, you're getting not only a username and password, but then also a second factor like a rotating key or a smartphone app that you have to type in a six digit code from. Um, you know, so there's, and if you're listening to this and you're like, man, my, my MSP isn't doing any of these things. Yeah. Don't necessarily immediately throw them under the bus. It very well could be that they offered you many of these things and you declined. <laughs> so maybe think about throwing yourself under the bus for a hot minute. Right. Yeah, nobody likes to spend money on anything, myself included. Um, but if maybe for the last three years, they've been telling you, Diane, we need to have a robust Fortinet firewall that does two-factor authentication. And, and you've just been like, nah, for three years, right? Now, again, right. frankly, if they were an elite MSP, if they were the best of the best, they would be firing you as a client for not buying that. Right. Yeah. Because um, yeah. the best of the best tend to ride really homogenous rails. Like they don't, if, if one of their clients has this like goofy old mainframe and a closet somewhere and is like refusing to upgrade it, 
a really, really high-end MSP is not going to tolerate that type of thing. They're just going to say, hey, listen, find a crappier MSP to deal with this. Right. Because uh, they know how dangerous it is, and they don't want to be exactly. accused of being bad at their job or, or hurt their reputation right. by, you know, your organization deciding to run 25-year-old equipment. You know? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Okay, I'm going to take a quick sponsor break, and then I want to continue uh, with the conversation. Accelerate Your Business Growth Podcast is happy to be sponsored by Audible.com. Audible.com is a leading provider of spoken digital audio entertainment and information. They have over 150,000 titles to choose from, and you can listen to them on any device, including whatever you're hearing us on right now. And if you sign up at our link, which is audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth, you get one free audiobook and a one-month trial of the service. Some examples of books you can listen to on audible.com are Two Brain Business 2.0 by Chris Cooper and The Aspiring Solopreneur by Chris Kluver. So visit audibletrial.com slash businessgrowth, explore the books that are of interest to you, and receive one free audiobook when you sign up for the trial. Today we're speaking with Brian Gill about protecting your business from cybercrime. So Brian, I am imagining that employees are one of the most dangerous things to a company when it comes to cybersecurity. <laughs> so will you talk some about the sort of trainings that employees should go through, like mandatory trainings employees should have to go through? Yeah, and I have kind of there's kind of two ways to go about this. First of all, employees are dangerous, but if any organization that's any good is because they have wonderful employees, right? Um, right. The, so we're, we're not going to get replaced by AIs or robots anytime soon. Uh, so that's the good news for your listeners. But, uh, but certainly the more kind of endpoints you have, the more risk your organization kind of has as well. Right. So, yeah. And most data breaches, uh, I think the number is over 60%, will start with a phishing attack, right? And it's phishing spelled weird, and people have heard it, but a lot of people don't quite know what it means, right? And it's basically getting tricked into giving your username and password to a particular service, often through email, okay? But not always. So what'll happen, and again, there's a big misconception out there. Like I ask almost anybody like, hey, you know, how, off, how likely are you personally to fall for a, for a fake email? And there is a lot of confidence out there, like 0%, right? Um, now, but it's happening every single day, thousands and thousands of times. And almost everybody that's pushing that button is super smart. So how does this keep happening? And it has mostly to do with underestimating how tricky those emails can be. Um, it's not an email from a random guy overseas in broken English talking about wiring you $33 million, right? It's, it's not that Nigerian print scam anymore. It, it is, it's an email from Diane. And it sounds like her, and it's asking you to log into Dropbox to see a 
document that she put together that's all about 10 ways to accelerate your business through Facebook marketing, okay? So it's like, okay, Diana sent me things like this before, I enjoy her work, and she just sent me this, you know, thing and I'm gonna check it out. And they click on the Dropbox link and it asks for their username and password to log in the Dropbox and they stick it in there, right? But it wasn't Dropbox. And what just happened is you got fished and the bad guys have, and oh, by the way, the email may or may not have come from you. It, you know, maybe they made a yeah. Gmail account with your, with your last name spelled wrong or with a couple of digits. Maybe they did hack your email and are sending that email legitimately from you. I mean, not from you, you, but from your email account to their whole list, right? So these things can be really, really tricky. And now the bad guys have a username and password for Dropbox for sure. And they can log into your Dropbox and see who knows what you store up there, right? Or pick your platform. Dropbox isn't alone in this. Um, but it is a popular phishing target. Uh, they also have a password from you and an IP address from you. And they obviously know who you are because your username is probably, you could probably yeah. figure out who the human is by that attempt to log in. Or maybe they can pick that out of a couple of the documents they steal from you on Dropbox. So if you are, are like a lot of humans and you have three or four passwords that you use everywhere, you're, you're in real trouble now, like real trouble. Yeah. So um, I guess, so to answer the question, like what are some of the things organizations can be doing? And again, you can hire a good MSP or have an internal IT provider that is doing some sort of social media training or, or social engineering training rather. And uh, you could certainly be subscribing to a whole bunch of, you know, blacklists of people that, or of domains that you don't want to get emails from. Uh, you can have some different automated things that you can pay for to try to uh, get rid of those fake URLs. Like, hey, I know that that's not Dropbox. I'm going to delete this email before Diane even gets it. But more specifically, you could try to implement two-factor authentication on every site that you use. So if when you log into Dropbox for real, you put in your username and password, and then it asks for that rotating code from your smartphone, well, the bad guys did get a username and password for you, but they can't actually get into your Dropbox. And if all of your common places you visit also require that second factor of login, well, they, they can't really get in anywhere, can they? Uh, well, they can if they work really, really hard to like, yeah. That we ha and then we've seen situations with high value targets where they will work as hard as to get your telephone number changed to theirs, you know? So they'll, they'll go buy a different wow. and, and port your numbers so that a, a lot of the online services will send a text with a code instead of being a rotating digit from an app. So we've seen that um, where, wow. but, but that's really high value targets to go through that much trouble. Right. So the easy thing is, you know, you don't even need your organization to do anything. Just turn on two factor everywhere. Just for the record, it will add about 10 seconds of annoyingness to every time you log on to anything. <laughs> that 10 seconds is 
the price to be paid for dramatically better security. Uh, yeah. So it's a wow. trade-off. And, you know, if you're the CEO where your IT guy said, hey, we need to add this two-factor to the firewall, and he turned it on, and you're like, oh, this is annoying. I don't always want to have my phone with me. And you told him to turn it off. Well, you're a, that was a bad behavior. And call him back and tell yeah. him to turn it back on. <laughs> Um, but more than that, and again, I don't want to get super duper technical here, but there is a whole new passwordless thing happening where probably five years from now, people probably won't use passwords very much. It'll be kind of seen as archaic is my personal belief. Um, there's a new thing called a YubiKey. And again, I I don't have any relationship with them, but uh, you can buy them on Amazon. They're about 50 bucks. And it's a key. It, it'll fit on your keychain. It's about the size of a key. And when you go to log in to services, you just have to push a physical button on your key. And it replaces that whole, uh, that whole username password thing. It really does. And wow. And it's, it's really powerful, but it's really, um, it's scary for people to get started. But what you'll yeah. find is that your Dropboxes and your Facebooks and your Gmails, they all support it. Um, it's a new protocol. It's called U2F. And you don't even really need to understand it very much. But if, if all you did was, you know, go to your online retailer of choice and buy a YubiKey, um, you'd be, and then, and then just decided to move all your password management to that physical dongle, your life would be more secure. That is so interesting. Yeah, and again, there, it's, there's, there's going to be trade-offs to everything that can be done. Well, what happens when I yeah. lose my key? And well, now I've got this single point of entry, and what if I lose it in the parking lot? You know, are they going to be able to get into everything on my behalf? There, there's certainly, you know, nothing's perfect. But I think five years from now, everybody is going to have either a standalone security dongle or they may have just kind of built into their smartphones, which are doing the biometric sensing of, yep, that's definitely Diane. Like we're yeah. just going to outsource a lot of this right to those cell phones is what I personally. Right. Okay. So, so this leads me to my question about employees who are working remotely. So, or even business owners who are working re remotely, you know, like in coffee shops and things like that. Does, does that whole key thing protect them when they're like at a Starbucks? Yep. So it would help wow. a lot. Because one of the things that can, there's a lot of different ways you can get burned on the road. And we talked about how you can get fished and how you might go to the wrong Dropbox or the wrong Gmail. Okay. Well, sometimes... If you're in the wrong coffee shop, they may have a, you know, McDonald's free Wi-Fi that's sitting there. And that might not be McDonald's, okay? And we're starting to talk about some of the more advanced melt-your-brain type of hacks that are out there. Um, but if there was a doppelganger wireless network there that you decided to use, well, they're going to see a lot of that traffic. And one of the goofy things, if you're really, really smart, that you can do is you could trick this whole ecosystem into thinking, well, gmail.com isn't over here at this IP address. It's actually over here at this IP address. So wow, really? 
Really? Now, what you might notice when you log in to Gmail is in the upper left-hand corner of your browser, there's like a little lock that sits there that shows you like, I know this is really Gmail because there's a whole bunch of tech mumbo jumbo that's happened and they purchased a bunch of certificates to prove that this is really Gmail. But in some situations, you can end up not seeing that little lock and maybe you didn't even ever notice it sitting there, right? Right. And right. you go, but again, you click on a bookmark and then you log into quote unquote Gmail and they got your stuff that way. So um, again, th this whole, and I don't want to spend the whole time talking about U2F and YubiKeys and all this kind of thing, but it really is a different protocol where when you set up that U2F account, it will do a private handshake and the encryption, the, the situation both ways is going to be encrypted to a new standard and you're not using username and password, you're clicking the thing and that key is not going to be fooled by the fake Gmail, nor is right. it going to be fooled by Dropbox spelled wrong with like a, a zero instead of an O somewhere. The yeah. key knows hey, and the key's paying attention. It's like, this isn't really them. And even if it was them, they don't have the other half of the encryption handshake. They, don't, they just don't have it. So, because that was established, you know, 17 months ago. So what, what you would notice if you were on one of those bad Wi-Fi's is things just wouldn't work and it would probably just warn you like, hey, this isn't, this isn't right. I'm not going to even try to log you in here. Yeah, so, right. Uh, I've seen that. And the second thing, we talked about it a couple times, but if you are going to be, um, when you're business traveling, it's really, really important. You know, you are probably logging into your O365 account or you're logging into your business network right. over VPN. You absolute, I would argue that any organization of any reasonable size should probably have three factors of authentication. You know, one being that's a trusted device. Like, I know Diane's laptop. It's got a Mac address of this. And yep, Diane used a username and password that I know is good. And then the third factor would be that rotating code, right? So yeah. that would be the minimum to log on to any network that I managed. Um, and, and again, it'll blow people's minds, but if you're a high enough value target, there are incredibly savvy folks that can still penetrate these networks, but you're making it so difficult. And right. if, if you had those three things, it's going to be exponentially more time sink for a criminal to hack into you than the other, you know, 90 million businesses in America. So yeah, exactly. Sometimes you don't have to be faster than the bear. You just got to be faster than the people next to you, right? The, then the, right. You got to be faster than the slowest runner. That's so, right. So what about having your own hotspot? Yeah, I mean. Does that help? I mean, for, yeah, I mean, if you are paying like your telecommunication service, like, mm -hmm. a, like a Verizon or somebody for like an always on kind of LTE, and, and if that service is in the major in in all the major airports that you're traveling to, certainly um, that would be better than than trusting some random, mm -hmm. untrusted, quote unquote McDonald's or hotel Wi-Fi when it is 
not all that difficult these days to basically pull up a van and just produce right. free Wi-Fi. Uh, so yeah, it's certainly having that trusted, um, always there service is probably a better option. As far as turning your cell phone on to actually be a hotspot for other people, um, certainly it's relatively secure. Certainly I would not recommend you know, ever giving your password for your hotspot to, you know, random people, but you could right. probably, you know, trust most of your coworkers or your children not to get <laughs> into too much trouble. But do keep in mind that that the activity, their activity is kind of your activity, right? Yeah. So you do want to be at least a little bit paranoid. Um, yeah. And, and frankly, you know, it's easy enough to turn it off when you're not using it. And, you know, my personal hotspot is usually off. Right. And, and a little paranoia goes a long way. <laughs> yeah. Too much That's paranoia and you turn into me, but there's an appropriate amount. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Okay. So, and, and talk to me about cyber insurance coverage. How, how does a company know they've got enough? Well, first of all, have some, right? Um, yeah. Most businesses, again, once you reach a certain size, you know, maybe you got that like sixth or seventh or eighth employee, you've probably at that point come to the conclusion that you need some kind of business insurance, right? Right. And you've met with a broker and they told you all the wonderful things that they, they did and you picked a couple things out of their platform. But what you probably didn't do is by a cyber specific policy from a company like a Beasley or a traveler's insurance. Mm. And um, what you might be surprised by if your organization gets data breached and all of a sudden you have this devastating business event, right? There's, you can't get much more devastating than everybody getting to the office and everybody's data being encrypted and nobody can do anything and clients are calling up angry and then some bad actor is asking you for $200,000 worth of Bitcoins. Like this is about as devastating as it gets, let alone the fact that a, that a bunch of criminals have been on your network and may have been stealing the data and all of the disclosures you're going to have to do with your employees and buying their identity protection forever. And, you know, yeah. God forbid you had a whole bunch of clients information or God, God forbid you had any kind of financial or healthcare information for people. And you could be looking at fines and, all kinds of problems, right? So this is a really, really devastating event. One would assume that my general business insurance will, will help me through this terrible disaster. And you'd probably yeah. be wrong. Yeah. Um, most of the time when we look at these things, these cyber related events are usually excluded from those general day-to-day -day business. So maybe some aspects will be covered, like any overtime that you end up working might get covered, or if you have to hire an IT person to come in and do 50 hours of work, that might be covered. But all of this ransomware, all this data breach, all these privacy attorneys you have to hire and PR hits, and none of that stuff's gonna get covered, right? So you really need, how much should any organization have? Should you have it? Again, when you're just getting started and you're kind of one to five people, every expense is a huge expense. And I would just say that you should look at it 
Not to say that you would necessarily look at it and buy some, but it's probably not too early to start looking at it and understanding those types of policies. Um, now, but in, in cyber is just part of your general risk profile, right? And there's a whole bunch of things we can do with risk, right? We can try to defend against it, which is what we've spent the last 45 minutes talking about is mostly yeah. how do we defend against, defend against, defend against. Um, you could also prepare for it and understand what your disaster plan is. You could have a incident response company on retainer or an MSP on retainer for when these things happen. I know who's coming in to save the day. Um, you could also insure against it, right? And you could right. buy some insurance that you know has certain practical applications like not only do I have an IR firm on retainer, but I have an insurance policy that's gonna pay them other than my $5,000 or $2,000 retainer or whatever your policy says. And then the last thing you can do with risk is just kind of eat it. You know, like, ah, I'm not gonna spend any money on this. I don't wanna defend against this stuff. And if this type of stuff happens, we are just gonna just, you know, whatever the ramifications that are, that's the boat we're in, right? And- yeah any thoughtful plan is probably going to eat some risk, right? For sure. Because sure. you don't want to just, yep. In order to protect your company, it'll be a quarter million dollars a year. Well, my whole, my revenue is 500,000. I can't spend half my revenue on defending against this. So you're going to be eating and, you know, putting on a plate and carving up with a knife and a fork. You're going to be eating some risk, right? But yeah you have to understand like what would the ramifications be with an outage and what would the financial ramifications be if we lost this, this, or this. And uh, you have to understand the trends as far as certain demands of cryptocurrency amounts and make sure that your cyber policy is actually going to pay for that ransom. Or again, maybe you just invest crazy heavily in, backups and then right. gapped or offline backups that you actually pay somebody to audit all the time. So you yeah. know, well, I'm never going to have to pay to get my own data back because it's backed up three different ways and we test it. Right. Right. And one of those is offline on a tape that right. I take to my house and rotate once a week. So, right. you know, there's, this stuff is just really confusing, but um, certainly well, I think that once you hit like 20 employees or once you hit like a couple million dollars of revenue, if mm -hmm. you don't have a cyber insurance policy to cover some of this stuff we're talking about, you're, you're just not prepared. Um, if you've looked at it and, and made a decision that you're going to eat that risk, that might be okay. But if you haven't looked at it, You've never right. heard of these cyber policies and just kind of assumed your business insurance is covering it. Right. Yeah. You, you need to start looking around and talking to some brokers and it's never, nobody ever. And, and I have a lot of friends in the insurance business at this point, but you know, it's a hard thing as a business owner, right? To say, Hey, I'm going to like call two or three vendors and have them try to sell me stuff. Cause that's what we want to be doing to our clients. But, right. um, yeah, I mean, yeah. If, if a lot of this is foreign and your organization is of a relatively, if you're growing rapidly or, again, if you're in those healthcare or 
financial services, like, yeah, you need to be looking at this stuff. Definitely. And, and one of the things that I um, think is so interesting about this is th th there's a lot of collateral damage when it comes to cyber crime. Like you mentioned a couple of them, um, a, a, you know, a communication plan. What if your employee's information gets out? What if your client information gets out? What if they get access to financial information? There's a lot there, you know, paying attorneys and having to potentially hire a PR firm to do damage control. There really are a lot of other aspects to this outside of getting my data back or um, trying to protect my data from not getting stolen. Yeah, and again, it's really, we work really, 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 really hard on defense and making sure it never happens. But part of a comprehensive strategy is going to have been talking about, well, what do we do if it does happen? And what does that right. look like? And right. how do we behave? Exactly. Because right. the last thing you want to do in that moment of crisis, when that building is burning down, that's not the right time to get on the phone and start calling fire departments and trying to pick which fire department would be the best for you. Right. And the most reasonably priced. You yep. know, you don't have, that's one of the hardest parts of these crises is, is the timing. And, you know, every, for a lot of our clients, every hour the business is down, we're talking about five or six figure losses of every hour of loss of productivity. Right. And if you're sitting there calling around to a bunch of weird vendors like Gilware trying to figure out how the engagement works and what does it cost and what are the retainers and how do you protect us and why should I choose you over these other guys? Like, yeah, that's a really hard, really difficult place to be um, if you have literally no idea what you're going to do. Exactly. Right. Right. It's like closing the barn door after the horse has escaped. So yeah. Really, yeah. It's really yeah. a tough thing. And it's not just the, the tech nerds like us. It's the, it's the privacy councils. So if you're in one of those regulated industries, yeah. there's all kinds of lawyering that needs to happen as far as different disclosures to third parties and disclosures to the government. And, you know, you can't just bury your head in the sand and pretend the hack didn't happen because then you might get fined or sued by your clients out of existence. And again, it's really hard to make all these decisions when the phone is ringing off the hook and all your employees right. are looking at you like, what are we supposed to do here, Brian? Yeah. Uh, it's, you, you got to play a strong defense, but then you also have to have a skeleton of a plan and a couple of phone numbers, if not Definitely. a handful of people on retainer, just in case. Yep. Yep. I t and it is not going away. It's only getting more creative and worse. So yeah. I, I think it's actually going to get worse for two or three more years. Um, yeah. And then I think we'll probably even out and about, again, I personally think five or six years from now, authentication is just going to get taken out of the hands of people or 99% yeah. of the people. And it's going to get replaced yeah. with a more modern form of passwordless identity. And that will be a big, there'll be a big paradigm shift. And I, I hate that word, but that's going to be a big moment where all of a sudden we go from as a, as a 
as a community of business owners and people, we are going to go from like a three out of 10 in terms of preparedness to like an eight out of 10. It, it, it'll still get hacked. There'll still be bad, yeah, right. but as far as just, once we get away from this whole username and password thing, life's going to be a lot better. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to, to watch. Uh, Brian, I so appreciate this information um, that you are sharing. It, it's, um, there's so much to it. And I think just listening to uh, the realities of it, but also, you know, as we were talking a minute ago, all of the other aspects to all of this, one of the things that I uh, really appreciate you saying is you have to at least take a look at it, get educated, find out what resources are out there and make sure that you are covered um, reasonably, but intelligently, whatever it is, and then at least you know what you are doing or not doing and, and what the possible ramifications are of that before something happens. So thank you so much for, for sharing that information. It, it's tremendously valuable. And will you tell the listeners, you know, about um, how they can find you and, and what's going on over there? Yeah. So again, I'm not here to I'm just here to try to add value. And again, I do vividly remember 15 years ago when we started this business and we're running it out of a basement instead of a physical office. And, you know, I look back at those days really, really fondly. And if we would have got some sort of a breach in year two, my life would be dramatically different. Um, yeah. You know, it's, it is so much fun to build your business and really go for it. But um, playing a little bit of defense is really, really smart. Um, again, I'm Brian Gill from Gilware. Best way to find me, I'm somewhat active on LinkedIn is probably my number one social media. And then um, if you're a business owner and you're kind of wondering how prepared you are, um, we have put together a free um, platform called the Ransomware Stress Test, where you can go to gilware.com, find the RST, and you can take a self-guided tour through most of the stuff we've been talking about here with Diane. And uh, at the end of that, it'll kind of give you a rudimentary score for how you're at in some of these categories. And then even some videos talking about self-remediation steps. So it's really not uh, like something where we're trying to convince people to take it and then give you some sort of goofy hard sell later. It really is just trying to raise the awareness, not of the IT people, but of the CFOs, the CEOs, the board members, um, it's a great vehicle for those people to kind of get an idea of how prepared they are for this kind of stuff. Wonderful. Wow, that is great. I strongly recommend everyone go and take that so you know uh, where you are. It does, uh, it so, does take a couple hours, so it's not – Okay. There's some – that is the one problem is, as you might we, – we've talked for like an hour or whatever, and um, that is one of the reasons why we're so – inadequately prepared as a society is because there's just so much stuff to this and yeah right it's not all that fun but yeah. you know if you but can take listen. a couple hours and at, at least if you've made it to the end of this uh, i applaud you <laughs> and i hope you are gonna take a just take a baby step don't don't try to do all this crap in one day take one baby step you know yeah to, to yeah 
at least making sure your passwords are big and nasty or something or rolling out two-factor authentication on your firewall or buying a firewall if you don't have one, all those types of things. Anything is better. Just take one baby step, please. I'm begging yes. you. Yes, yes, yes. I'm so with you on that. Uh, and listeners, uh, thank you. You're who we're doing this for. And um, listen to this episode again. Uh, make sure you get that information down. And, and as Brian says, just do at least one thing. Uh, you'll feel better for it. And I would like to thank our sponsor, audible.com. To get your free trial of audible.com as well as a free audiobook, please go to audibletrial.com businessgrowth to sign up. As always, continue to prosper and be curious. And until we meet again on another episode of Accelerate Your Business Growth, goodbye and good day. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.